Welcome back to episode 10 of the Energy Today podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Roos, and let's get into it. So I want to first take a look at WTI over the past week, like we always do, but then I want to explain after that um, carbon markets and emission trading systems, specifically in China. So WTI has been continuing to march towards that $60 per barrel range. And for those that don't know, the West Texas Intermediate Futures Contract, or WTI, is the main gauge for, for the price of oil in the United States. Brent crude, on the other hand, is the main gauge internationally, and that is at around $62 a barrel as of the recording of this show. A couple of drivers here are the rebalancing of supply and demand in the oil, in the oil market, continued support or accommodation from OPEC, some restraint by drillers in the U.S. I'll get into that later. later. And as always, as I'm sure everyone is tired of hearing about the pandemic. So first looking at crude inventories kind of driving the supply and demand equation. Um, as I touched on in the last episode, crude inventories are the amount of unrefined petroleum that is in inventory in the U.S. It shows us where supply is at, and this gauge has really taken on increased importance during the pandemic, which the pandemic causing demand to be artificially suppressed, you know, this it's important to kind of see where the supply of inventor, inventories is at. So for the week ended February 5th, 2021, U.S. crude, in, crude inventories declined by 6.6 million barrels from the previous week. And this is compared to a drop of 1 million barrels for the week before that. So this is good news. This is a good thing that, that's happening. It seems as if inventories are somewhat accelerating in their decline, which does support prices like supplies slowly decreasing as demand has kind of remained constant. So that's a good thing as far as prices go. Um, Total crude inventories as a whole are currently standing at about 2% above the five-year average from the same period last year. So even though inventories are a bit elevated, these declines remain a positive trend, and I really hope that we continue to see this trend continue going forward. So now looking at rig counts in the U.S. and rig counts simply just reflect the number of oil rigs uh, that are producing oil and gas. So rig counts in the U.S. are currently sitting at around 397. Um, This is up from this is up five from a, a week ago. And this is this number still reflects about in half from where oil oil rigs were a year ago. So four out of the five of this rig count increase did come from Texas and 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 um, according to an article on oilprice.com during the past 12 weeks um, t- today the rig count has increased by 87 which is pretty substantial um, this is a direct result of the price of oil increasing as as Back in November, oil was trading around $40 a barrel, so we've really had some pretty big increases um, to now, which which makes sense on why oil companies would want to increase the number of rigs producing oil and gas. So it's interesting, though, that this 87 increase uh, for the prior 12-week period or the five increase from just a week ago 
is it weighing on oil prices? Oil prices, simply thinking from a supply-demand perspective, increases in the production of oil without really broad-based increases in demand, it's logical to assume that this would weigh on the price of oil instead of seeing it continuing to rise where it's almost where WTI is almost pushing $60. So the reason that it's not weighing on, on prices is the 800 pound gorilla in the room, the cartel, whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, which is OPEC. So OPEC is continuing to be very accommodating, which is sort of surprising, um, considering just history in general. Um, OPEC is reducing production by 8.2 million barrels per day for February and March. Um, and the group is expected to hold steady on this uh, promise through April of 2021. So for a little bit more detailed explanation of this, uh, definitely check out some of my prior episodes where I go a little bit more into detail. But the big point here is that they're just being accommodating in the sense that they're just holding back supply from the market. So giving us some more, um, you know, I guess, an artificially uh, impacted supply demand equation. So. The most important thing about this, though, is that it's 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 important to remember that they won't hold back this production forever. I mean, I, I really hope that when demand does ultimately normalize, whenever that may be, that they as well as um, the U.S. slowly roll back um, these cuts as opposed to all at once. The U.S. isn't, I guess, like holding back production, but they're just not going out and, and trying to, to tap more oil reserves. So from, from an OPEC perspective, I really hope that they slowly roll back these cuts. So history of OPEC does not support them being very accommodating to the U.S. oil industry by any means, but uh, I choose to remain optimistic here. Um, I actually gave a presentation last week in a class about the upstream sector and one of my friends asked me if I thought that the price of oil has priced in returning demand expectations and really a post-COVID world. And I replied that um, if I knew that answer, I probably wouldn't be here giving this presentation. I'd probably put all my money uh, on, on where I think oil is going. But in more seriousness, it's certainly possible that that increased demand and economic growth post-pandemic is priced in. But I do imagine that the price of oil is a bit optimistic right now. It, I think that oil market participants seem to be discounting the effect OPEC might have in the market post-pandemic. And this really can't be knowable. You know, I guess we'll see what happens, but I think that that's not really discounted into the market. So as time does go on, unfortunately, it seems that COVID will be around for a long, long time, and it'll be interesting to see how consumption patterns do change uh, in the long term. I don't think that people will be driving or flying as much as they used to, but I do imagine that a lot of economic growth and pent-up demand in whatever capacity that may be will do well for prices in the future. So as far as to say if oil is overpriced or underpriced or or is pricing and expectations correctly? I'm unsure. I mean, your guess is as good as mine and really anybody's, but it will be important for U.S. oil producers and OPEC to be accommodating going forward as, as we go into a new normal of the world. So 
anyways, got off a little bit of a, a tangent there, but I hope that I did shed some light on where oil is at and it might be heading towards in the future. So switching gears a little bit, I wanted to take a look at something I've never covered on the show and quite frankly don't know a lot about, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but is a really interesting development I think is going to play a, a relatively big role in the future. And, and what I'm talking about is carbon markets. So first looking at carbon markets, it helps to just define simply what a carbon market is. The a carbon market's goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by setting limits on companies for how much greenhouse gases they can emit. One of the main categories of of carbon markets are emission trading systems and emission trading systems or ETS for short are referred to as cap and trade systems. So just in effect, these systems, um, you can think about them as sort of like a marketplace for carbon in a sense. So these systems set a limit on greenhouse gas emissions from a set of, a broad set of emission sources and a couple of these could be just oil or coal producing, for example. Um, typically at the outset of an emission trading system, this cap placed on companies will be set, excuse me, to uh, around current emissions. So a governing body or, or an authority will um, allocate carbon credits which carbon credits basically give a company or an entity the right to emit greenhouse gases up to a certain figure with each credit typically being measured in a ton of carbon dioxide. So at the end of a specified period or a specified reporting period, however that works, a company um, will measure their emissions in, in some way and compare this figure to the amount of carbon credits that they were given by this governing body. So they will send or, or mark that they use a certain number of these credits to account for their emissions to this governing body or administrator that issued them these credits to begin with. If this company, um, for example, emitted less than they were allotted to in, in terms of the credits, they can sell their excess um, carbon credits on an emissions trading systems uh, marketplace. So. This provides incentives to emitters to cut back greenhouse gas emissions. And, and that way, if they do this, they can sell their leftover credits and, and make some money there. On the flip side, though, <clears throat> excuse me, if a company emitted more greenhouse gases than they were allotted to in terms of credits, then that company can go into the marketplace um, and purchase additional credits to ultimately equate to whatever their greenhouse gas emissions amounted to. So the overarching goal of a carbon marketplace is to internalize the cost of, of greenhouse gas emissions. So it provides financial incentives to companies to lower their emissions and a, um, a new income stream um, of selling or, or trading their carbon credits. So there are many um, of these systems in place around, around the world, such as in the EU, Australia, and South Korea, to just name a few. Other countries, such as the US, have systems in place that are at the state level. And in the US, the states um, kind of covered in this, uh, are mainly in the Northeast, uh, 
such as New York, Delaware, Vermont, and, and a few others up there, and even California over on the West Coast. So you might be wondering why I just explained in, in a high level what emissions trading systems are. And the reason I did this is because I wanted to take a look at China's new interest in entrance into the carbon marketplace. So this week I read an interesting article on oilprice.com and I really wanted to share that with my listeners. So looking at this article and just the, the, the China dynamic in general, China has almost always since, since we've known China to be is to focus on increasing economic output really at all costs and a byproduct of this made it makes it the largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. So China is now seeking to be more environmentally conscious uh, and even announced that it'll seek to be carbon neutral by 2060. And this is in line with a lot of companies in other countries' uh, projections or statements that they'll be carbon neutral by 2050. I don't know if this how uh if this is actually going to happen or not if they're going to be carbon neutral by 2060 but china simply making this statement is a pretty big deal and according to this article china has recently launched a carbon trading marketplace and um china you know by itself is accountable for 30 percent of the world's emissions and this new uh, nationwide carbon trading system will cover their power industry specifically um, which accounts for a pretty substantial amount of their emissions and this is the, the, the importance here is such a change in tune from economic output of all costs to now we're going to launch a um, carbon trading system i wouldn't be surprised if kind of the the tit for tat going on with the u.s and china if the U.S. announces a push into carbon trading systems, especially with how accommodating the Biden administration has been towards green energy pushes. So um, in this article, China basically said that, that eventually it'll cover oil and gas at some future time. Whenever that may be, is, is you know, your guess is as good as mine. But right now it's just going to cover their their power and power industry. So as I mentioned earlier, carbon credits are priced priced up per ton of carbon dioxide. And with this system, it's expected to, to price this carbon credit, a single carbon credit at around $6. So reference in this article, it, it says that that $6 figure is far below the $50 to $100 range. It's kind of a consensus for carbon credits that for them to actually have an impact on curbing emissions. So this seems to be a good first step by China, but China still uses coal for roughly 50% of their energy mix compared to the U.S. sitting at around 10%. So quite a difference there. Um, the jury really still is out on the effectiveness of carbon markets and emissions trading systems as a whole. Some say they're effective and others say they aren't. There's, there's really no silver bullet for addressing climate concerns. But China taking a softer tone here um, and making some first steps with climate concerns is interesting, considering its economy um, has not taken that, that tone or approach for many years. Um, it's, it's important to also remember that emissions trading systems are still in their infancy. They're, they're pretty complex and costly to set up and require a lot of compliance among many different stakeholders.
it's quite difficult to gauge who is covered with these emission caps and what the baseline is for emissions and how many credits each entity gets. Um, and, and most importantly, the price of a carbon credit is difficult to gauge considering that it can be traded in the free market. So there's just a lot of details to be ironed out. Um, emissions trading systems as a whole are really best fit for larger, more industrialized nations like the US, for example. But remember that close to a billion people in the world still don't have access to electricity, like still don't have light bulbs, <laughs> like that, that kind of access to electricity. Um, these places, there's quite a few, but just to name a few is Sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia, and they're not going to go from no electricity to alternatives or renewables and to just having a, a, a marketplace trading carbon credits. In some ways, these areas really have yet to experience their industrial industrial revolution, like we experienced, like the U.S. experienced in, in the 1800s. So while emissions trading systems do have their place in industrialized countries, it's important to remember that not every country is on the same playing field here. So my explanation of carbon credits was pretty high level, and if I lost you somewhere along the way, I will put some links in the show notes for more detailed commentary on carbon markets as well as China's new carbon market. I will also put in the show notes an interesting article from the Wall Street Journal about the price of propane during COVID. And I know um, you're probably thinking the price of propane, but it doesn't sound as exciting as the price of oil. However, the price of propane is up about 70% since November. And this is interesting because when you think about energy, so much focus is drawn to the price of oil and, oh, where is WTI or Brent sitting at now? But the, the cool or interesting thing about energy is there's just so many facets to the energy mix. So anyways, definitely check out that Wall Street Journal article um, and it'll be in the show notes. A little bit longer of an episode today, but I hope that you really learned some interesting things about carbon trading markets and sort of its role in the future. So that's all I have for this episode of the Energy Today podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Roos, and have a great week and definitely stay warm.